Hi, it's uh, Sunday afternoon, and I want to say a little bit about uh, Kissinger died the other day. Everybody's writing me about this, and it's a big deal. I can understand that. I'm actually surprised that there's so many people that remember him, because Kissinger was operating 50 years ago. I'll say it again, 5-0, 50 years ago. But nevertheless, you know, uh, I can't say it's us outside of Rosham. But to some degree, you'd see us Kissinger Osa Rosham, even though not in the same way and in a very complicated fashion. It's kind of interesting. Uh, this is being sponsored by our good friend Sally Cato. I uh, had the pleasure the other day of going to his Siam Ashas Mishnayis. Went through the whole art school Mishnah, the hard one, not the easy one, which is boring beyond belief, unless, in my opinion, unless you're holding in the Indian. You know what I mean? They're, you know, not the new art scroll Mishnayis, which is, uh, I always call the dummy-friendly one, but I, in a in a positive way, uh, but the old one, I think Yad Avram, they call it, which has a tremendous amount of of, of um, knowledge in it, a tremendous amount of research in it, and in my opinion, I mean, I wouldn't go through the, the whole Mishnayis that way, I mean, more power to you, but uh, I see the Yad Avram more in the sense of if you're interested in a particular subject you make it your business to find out where it is in the Mishnah and you look at it in the art school and they bring you all these uh, sources Rishonim and Achron and then it's quite impressive actually uh, I mean but they even have things I remember from out of Otis Levy from my Rashiva I mean you know, they did a lot of work um, but here but he did it this is the second time uh, that Sally Cato went, went through the Mishnah. So, uh, you know, uh, like I said before, Yasha Koch. Anyway, so I thank him for sponsoring. And we'll get right down to it. Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, is interested. I'm interested, obviously, in the Jewish angle. I would even say maybe even the from angle. This is not the time to go into a whole disquisition and compete with the biographers to give you the whole biography of Henry Kissinger. In his whole career, I could do it, but are you willing to spend 10, 12 hours? You know, and why would you? What do you care about his Pakistan policy in 1971? Yeah, um, we're interested in the Jewish side in this podcast, obviously. And I would even go so far as to say, looking at it from a from angle, by that I mean, you know, where do you see the hand of Providence acting in history? And I think you do with Kissinger, it's very interesting. I think everybody knows that he was 100. He died at the age of 100. <clears throat> so whoever cursed him, it didn't work out. <laughs> Number one. Number two, uh, he had a most unusual career because he was born in Germany. He came here when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. I think he's born in 23 and he came here in 38, so he's 15. From Firth, which is a from community. And his parents, as everybody knows, I know you don't need me to tell you this. His parents were uh, Shamar Shabbos. Uh, and, you know, they weren't in Breuer's, if, if I remember correctly. They were in another show because Breuer's is a Frankfurt type thing. And if you go back to the 30s and 40s, Washington Heights was peppered with all these different Yekesha shows um, from this Minhag and that Minhag and this city and that city. And I think Rabbi Breslauer was the one in, in the first synagogue. If you want all the information on this, go to um, my friend and listener who has... Uh, Jamie Myers, who has that uh, Broyers Together, you look it up, and he's got all kind, you know, on, online, uh, and he has all kind of uh, videos there. Uh, if you want to explore Yeki Land, and some of them are really 
you know, very good because he also did his research on the other synagogues in Washington Heights. Not just Breuer's, because there used to be a lot of them. Not anymore, but there used to be a lot of them. And um, and also, he did one on Kissinger. And me, myself, and I, not long ago, they put a... Years ago, when I did my... I think in 2017, I did my series on, uh, you know, the Saturday night thing, on the Yom Kippur War, because that's what we were up to at that time. So I did, like, one whole thing on Kissinger at that time, because that's when it was Nogea. He was the Secretary of State, as you know, during the Yom Kippur War. In the aftermath. And I remember did, I did a whole uh, piece on him. If you go online now, my son put it up the other day. You'll see, I think it's called Eichmer Ayyid or something like that. And if you go to, uh, you know what I mean, uh, my my uh, YouTube site, and uh, you look for the series now that's uh, going on, um, what do you call it? On, on, I mean, they're putting it up these days on um, in, in the sev- in 1970s. Uh, early 70s, so one of them was all about the role of Kissinger, which was extremely complicated. And what we know today is not identical to what we saw at that time. That's the point I want to get to. So let's take this from the bottom up. Kissinger was a guy driven by ambition. I don't blame him. A poor boy from, uh, you know, a refugee family in Washington Heights, like all these yekkas that ran away. They're the lucky ones who got out and escaped the Holocaust. They came over here. Obviously, uprooting somebody from the regular environment in Germany. Uh, I'll say it again. First, with a fairly from town, by German standards. And who knows what would have happened if he would have stayed there and all the rest of it. This is a complex business. The We all know about Sam Raphael Hirsch. But what about after him? It's not so pushing. Because a lot of the people who um, who were from in Hirsch's time their children or their grandchildren, you know, like sort of moved out. This was always a problem, not only in Frankfurt, elsewhere. You get what I'm saying? <clears throat> no, it was the third generation. By the time you get to the 20s and the 30s. And you had a fair number of people in Germany, people don't know this, who were still affiliated with the Orthodox Shoal and community, and they showed up there, but they weren't really, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. So it was an interesting milieu. Uh, and the 20s and 30s, until Hitler came along, was a time of a pretty liberal period in Germany. So in other words, the exposure to the Western culture, which is extremely uh, secular at that time, was pretty corrosive for a lot of people. So I don't know what it would happen had Kissinger stayed on. But he came to this country and went to public school. So what do you expect? And... If he came here in 38, so notice within a short time, World War II started. <clears throat> and, you know, he went to college and all the rest of it. Now, remember, his first wife was Jewish. And his children are Jewish. And I remember this Rabbi Breslauer, he wanted him to be Masada Kedushan, and he was. So as they had a from, uh, you know, a chasana. You know what I'm saying? You know, Kadas Moshe Yisrael. I'm not talking about the second marriage, I'm talking about the first. So his children are from that. Although he already was not, you know, observant. And it was World War II, and eventually ended up in the army. And when the war's over, he was in Germany a little bit and all that, but not in the fighting. And when the war's over, he went to Harvard. And I would say, if you're asking me my opinion, which is what this podcast is about, uh, he 
followed the policy, the traditional policy of the court Jew. I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, I mean in a very specific way. In Jewish history, we have this business of the Chatzranim, like like Chazde uh, Ibn Shapur and people like that. Shimshim Vertimer. And that means that one way of, uh, of attaining success and even power is by making yourself in proximity to power and making yourself of use to the power brokers. That's like a classic Jewish model. The Jews never had the ability to have their own power base when they're in Gullis, like a nobleman who owns land and property and things like that, or a clergyman, you know, a Christian clergyman, or a general, or somebody has some kind of source of power, <clears throat> member of the aristocracy. I mean, this is how it used to be. The Jew had none of that. So the only way the Jew could ever get power in the rare occasions when they could, to the limited degree that they could, is by getting somehow close to the top dog and being of use to that top dog. And then, you know, using the power delegated to the Jew by that top dog, could be a pope, could be an emperor, a queen, a duke. You know, that's how it was. <clears throat> so it's not my power. I am wielding the power that's given to me by the guy above me the, the, who has his own power uh, source, like a king, for example. And the power I'm deploying is his. I'm just <clears throat> the one trusted by him to deploy that power. I hope I made myself clear. So that's how you always did the court shoots. They never make <clears throat> power on their own. It was that they made by their financial services or things like that, made themselves useful to the rulers in Europe. And back in the way back when, the rulers in Europe, I wouldn't say they were dictators, but they're close to that. They had pretty much untrammeled power. Not entirely, but that substantial amount of power. And they would use the Jew, you know, in the case I'm talking about, for their own benefit. And meanwhile, the Jew enjoyed, you know, as a result of this funny relationship, a high position, which could be pulled at any moment. You know what I'm saying? Now, here we're talking about America, which is not Europe at all. And this is a much better country and much freer and, and uh, you know, democratic country. So it's important to keep that in mind. But nevertheless, how's a guy <clears throat> who grew up in Washington Heights, in Germany, had an accent and all the rest of it, you know, how's he going to get anywhere in life? Because it's pretty clear that early in life, he decided he ain't interested in Olam Haba, he's interested in Olam Haza. I respect that, you know. The, the the thing is, a lot of people who trade Olam Haba for Olam Haza don't even end up with a home Haza, right? Think of the guy who says, I'm not religious, I don't believe in this stuff. And then he works as a, you know, as a postman <laughs> or something like that. You know, he doesn't have either. Kissinger was so type that he said, I'm interested in the Olam Haza side, which is money, fame, and fortune, or power, things like that. As he famously said, power is the great aphrodisiac. Okay, that's what he pursued. How does a guy like him get power? In America, the regular way to get power, the normal way, is to run for office. You know what I'm saying? If you're a congressman, a senator, a president, a vice president, something like that, you have power because of the power of election. That's the <clears throat> Derek Amelch. But a guy like him wasn't going to do that. And he couldn't run for the highest office anyway. So instead, he made a, a intellectual career as a poli-sci guy, political scientist, 
which really is a certain type of historian. That's what it is. And I think you would know very well, in the case of Kissinger, uh, he specialized in 19th century political history um, about Metternich and people like that you probably never heard of. And uh, the Congress of Vienna in 1815, Lord Castlereagh, the English foreign, uh, prime minister. <clears throat> and the point, <clears throat> excuse me, the point that he made in his early writings was that um, when is it that you find in history that there was a long period of peace? Usually Western history, and he wasn't even thinking about Eastern history. Western history is constant wars. If you look throughout the history of the Middle Ages down to the 1800s, every year there's a war somewhere in Europe. I think I'm right about that. Uh, I could probably tell you, not that I'm showing off, I could probably tell you, you tell me the year, and I'll tell you where and when there was a war going on somewhere in Europe. Okay? So, sometimes a huge war, sometimes it's small. So, war was more common than peace. But in the 1800s, after the Napoleonic Wars, uh, that's not true. Much, much, much less. And so to a guy like Kissinger, this was interesting. And he got into this business of this, you know, certain type of political statesmanship that can lead to peace and stability. I, it was a right-wing uh, dictatorship kind of peace. So what? So what? You see, if you're a refugee and your life was uprooted by war and persecution and things like that, so just to have regular, you know, calm, what you and I, Bar Hashem, take for granted in America, so far, I don't know about tomorrow, which is life is pretty regular, peaceful, you concentrate on the peaceful pursuits, weddings, chasanas, bar mitzvahs, even burials, things like that. It's a regular kind of civilian life you couldn't take for granted in Europe. So, think about if you're in Israel now. You don't know if there's going to be some attack tomorrow from Hezbollah or from some other group, or the Houthis and the Shmutis and the Putis. You don't know. That is what a guy like him was very sensitive to. Now, the thing is, he eventually got his PhD in Harvard, so that already gives you a, a status, especially in America at that time. And he knew who to kiss up to. Okay. I don't say that in a bad way. <clears throat> That's how you got to get ahead if you're not a businessman making your own money. If you're going to have an academic career, something like something like that, you want to get ahead, you got to know who to kiss up to. <clears throat> and he made it his business <clears throat> to study nuclear war stuff, his famous book in the 1957, because that was really the hot item <clears throat> and that could get you into the elite circles in the 1950s and early 60s in America. Because that was the time, it's interesting, when in American history, we were obsessed with the atomic bomb. And then we weren't. When I was very little, and even before me, let's say in the 50s and early 60s, <clears throat> there's all these books and movies about what happens if there's World War Three, if there's a screw-up in the process and somebody drops a bomb. You know, another, uh, Dr. Strange loved the movie and Fail Safe and all these books and they had these think tanks and they're talking about thermonuclear war what happens if you drop an H-bomb <clears throat> how far will, will it go America was really 
scared because, see, in this country, we had never been used to being under a threat. And now by the 50s, when the Russians got uh, missiles, we're under a threat. This was a shock. If you're old enough my age, you'll remember that in day schools and public schools, they used to have drills. You know, when you hear the siren, get under the table. Now, I'm going to tell you something, my friends. If they drop an H-bomb at Baltimore, <laughs> being under the table isn't going to help you much. You know, maybe you bend down and kiss yourself goodbye. That's it. But this was the mentality. Oh, in, my, in the old TA, they used to take you down to the gym, which was underground, line you up against the wall. There was such a tukufa. Now, what's interesting is it went away. Sometimes in the mid-60s, if my memory serves me correctly, it stopped. Even though we're, we're all under the same threat, and we still are as we speak today. But people said, Gnug Shine. You see? It's very similar <clears throat> to what happened with the corona and the masks. After a while, people said, Gnug Shine. I can't take it anymore. I'll just live as I live. It's like a human. I'm not a scientist or somebody who researches public health and that sort of thing although I respect the people that do, and they'll tell you, you know, the public as a public has a certain amount of psychological time on their hands, patience. And for a certain amount of time, they're willing to deal with something, and then they don't want to deal with it anymore. I, it's the same problem, same health hazard, or in the case I'm talking about the same nuclear threat, uh, which could be catastrophic. shine. I can't, you know, I'm just going to go on with my life, the person says, if it happens, it happens. You understand? I can't live my life, you know, every day having a drill hiding under the desk. Excuse me. That's what people said. It's interesting how these things go. You know, the public as a public doesn't have a long patience span. That's part of, I guess, group dynamics or something. Like that. It must be people that study that. Now, in the case of Kissinger, he was in right in the middle of the moment <clears throat> When, it, when, when the interest and fear about the atomic bomb stuff was viral, was at front and center, and therefore he became a big reputation for himself that he knows about the nuclear stuff, and should they go for MAD, MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, so the Russians will nuke us and we'll nuke them, or uh, what was the other one? Or is he a nut, a nuclear utilization theorist? So then you can use small bombs uh, in a small way, meaning with slow, small yields. Imagine if Israel dropped a tiny A-bomb, for example, in Gaza, something like that. No, that kind of notion. People were writing about this all the time. There was a guy, Morgenthau, no relation to uh, the Secretary of Treasury, and there was a guy, Khan, I remember it's from long ago, and they were like gurus, okay? A lot of people made a lot of money advising the government and all this stuff. Fortunately, the U.S. and Russia never did shoot each other. Okay? Looking back, all those years of the Cold War, each side realized you ain't going to gain nothing if we all blow each other up. You understand? We came close a couple of times, like in Kennedy and the uh, Cuban crisis, and Kissinger was around and involved in that to some degree. But, uh, but we didn't do it. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened if, let's say, for example... In 1962, at the time of the Cuban crisis, we would have gone to war. They used to say like this, a blow up the world. Not true. America would be wiped out. Russia would be wiped out. 
So China would move in and so would the Muslims. That, that's, the, that's the bottom line. You see? And I think the Russians understood this very well. That's why they're very hesitant to uh, launch a nuclear war, even though, you know, the Russians have their moods, and if, if they feel like they're threatened or insulted, they'll just go for it in the sense of Thomas Nopsian Plishin. See, this was the big problem. Well, people say, heck with it. Let's just go. <laughs> Thomas Nopsian Plishin. You know, the Samson business. Uh, now, eventually, Kissinger hooked up with Nelson Rockefeller, who was a zillionaire, and people thought at that time he might be president. And Rockefeller was a Rockefeller, therefore he's looking for the smartest guys. And he don't care if you're Jewish or not. This is after the Second World War. And he got a reputation, Kissinger had a reputation. And he partly then into being close with Rockefeller. So you see, that's the court joke. His influence and power, he can go to high-level parties and stuff like that because he's Rockefeller's foreign policy, nuclear policy expert, even though he's Jewish. You see what I said? Even though he's Jewish. And he was able to parlay that. People thought a long time that Rockefeller eventually be president. Didn't happen. But that's what they thought. And Kissinger was part of the Rockefeller team. But his big break came when Nixon got elected in 68. Nixon, if you look it up, got elected by a hair. It was like a few votes more than the other guy, than Humphrey. It was a strange election. and But nevertheless, he was in. And Nixon, operating the same way, put in Kissinger. He was his key to power. So if you want to understand who Kissinger is, he's joined at the hip with Nixon, Richard Nixon, the President of the United States. Then it becomes very interesting because it so happened, it's like a perfect storm, that Nixon was a peculiar guy, very bright, right? People don't know, Nixon, when he was young, was accepted into Harvard Law School, but he couldn't afford to, 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 to pay. So he ended up going to Duke uh, Law School, which is a good law school also. But in other words, he had the brains, okay? And he had a... Nixon, I'm talking about, had an unbelievable political career uh, because he was vice president of the United States when he was 38 years old. You know what I said? 38. Under Eisenhower. And he made a lot of enemies on the way because he was a right-winger and he used the anti-communism thing and he ticked off a lot of Democrats. That is true. But so what? He got to be vice president of the United States for eight years under Eisenhower and he found, when he was vice president, that the thing that interested him most was foreign policy and foreign travel, because I told you it was the height of the Cold War. If it's the Cold War between America and Russia, then every country is of interest, because it's like chess game. I don't want you to have this country. I want to control that country, or vice versa. And there was such a takufa. The world is very different now. Maybe returning to that to a little bit as I speak. But for a long time, it's been very different. But at that time, there were two teams, the Orioles and the Yankees. One was America, one was Russia. China wasn't such a big player at that time. China was, interestingly, somewhat backwards. And, uh, I mean, technologically and otherwise. People don't know this. And um, it was Russia you had to worry about, the Soviet Union. And this, uh, when Nixon was the vice president, he traveled all over the world, every chance he could get. He visited every country, 
<coughs> he soaked up the local stuff. He couldn't get enough of it. And he was really interested in um, uh, foreign policy. He was much less interested in domestic policy. Uh, and when he became president, it was like a weather vane. He didn't really have like a conservative domestic policy. He wasn't Reagan or Trump or anything like that. You understand? Uh, he disappointed the conservatives his time. I remember this. You know, the William F. Buckley types. And uh, I'll give you an example. Nixon brought in the affirmative action. Nixon. And uh, Nixon had a family assistance plan where basically put all the poor people on in, in guaranteed income for the welfare. No, it's up to welfare. Things like that. So his idea was keep the domestic stuff quiet and let's try to deal with the Cold War. Between America and Russia. And when he became the president, he already had a lot of strong opinions. He was a stickle weirdo, maybe more than a little stickle weirdo. I guess if you run for president, you might have to be. We've had presidents who are normal, and we've had presidents who are weirdos. We have both. I think, me, myself, and I, I think Biden's normal. Biden. That doesn't make him a good president, bad president. I'm just talking about as a person. He seems to be normal. Trump was definitely a weirdo. Doesn't mean that he's a bad president. Necessarily, they say his home host is weirdo, uh, and all the presidents, you know, are like that. If you go in Mayan and eat sugar, so that's what makes history interesting, in my opinion. So Nixon was definitely weirdo, and he had been burned by a lot of the bureaucracy, the State Department, CIA, Defense Department, the domestic departments. When he was vice president under Eisenhower, he was still angry at the CIA because they didn't warn him <clears throat> that he was going to be attacked by a communist mob when he visited, I forget it was Venezuela, something like that in 1959, 60. These are all famous episodes for the Nixon fans, you know. And so he came into office when America was in the middle of the Vietnam War, and he was sort of promising, I'll get us out of Vietnam, but he didn't really have a plan. And Nixon did not like the State Department or the CIA or the Defense Department or any of these guys, which is strange to have a president of the United States come in with this kind of attitude. But remember, he was more experienced than any of the other presidents. He had been vice president for eight years, right? And he was a smart fellow in a certain way. I'll tell you again. You know, he was a successful attorney. He argued in front of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, like I say, he graduated Duke Law School. He was not a dumbbell at all. People thought he was, but he certainly was not. And he had this way of thinking by himself and writing things out on legal pads and all this kind of business. <clears throat> now, he thought everybody's out to get him. There's a sickle truth to that, <laughs> you know? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. The press and the others didn't like Nixon. He hated them. So it's a funny guy who recruited Kissinger. Because as soon as he got elected, he basically called in and said, I guess, I want to make you El Supremo in my administration and foreign policy. You know what I say? It's not much like Hasdeh bin Shapur or something like that. In other words, I, Nixon, yes, I'm going to have a Secretary of State, but I don't hold from him. And same thing with Secretary of Defense. I don't really hold from him. Uh, it was Rogers and Laird. And, uh, and the CIA, I don't trust them. And the FBI, I don't really trust them. And all these guys, you know, are... Uh, Looking from a parochial point of view, the bureaucrats cover each other. They always 
Like, you look bad and they should look good. Things like this is how Nixon talks. So I want someone who's cool Lola Nixon and not bound to any of the other parts of the bureaucracy. And he will be the one who runs the bureaucracy. And how will that be? See, Tolkien, you figured out how you should be. I want you to be the one guy who I deal with when it comes to national security policy, which is remarkable. No other president ever done that, right? See, he said, I don't want 100-page memos like to give other presidents to read up on this and that and the other and what's going on right now in Southern Africa and Eastern Asia and this and that. Uh, you crunch it down to me, you know, in a short business and you explain it by pair and, uh, and you'll have my attention span. And Kissinger couldn't believe his luck. He, who wasn't even born here, was now National Security Advisor, but na- usually the position of National Security Advisor is very important but it's not at the top of the pile. Usually the way it's supposed to be in America, the way it's supposed to be is the Secretary of State is in charge of foreign policy. That's what it should be. Often it isn't in modern times. There haven't been too many Secretaries of State where they were given the power by the President to actually dominate the foreign policy. There have been a few. Atchison is the famous one. John Foster Dulles was the famous one. A couple of others. But there are plenty of Secretary of States who are not. Blinken, I can't tell exactly, because the, the jury's not out. But he seems to have a lot of influence. Uh, you know, like, I don't know what goes on inside the House, the White House. But Nixon basically said like this, you, the State Department, the Defense Department, and all the others, I don't want to talk to you directly. You talk to Kissinger, and he'll explain to me what you hold. And not only that, whenever an issue comes up, I want Kissinger to be the guy who defines the sugya and gives me the different uh, possible ways of action and recommends the action, and usually I'll follow what he says. And that's what happened. So whatever the Defense Department thought about Vietnam or the others had to be refracted through Nixon, through Kissinger. And he really became like the door keeper of all the big, important national security business in Nixon administration. It's quite remarkable. What I'm trying to say is like this. If there was some kind of business with the defense or the foreign policy or Cuba or China or Russia, yeah, he had Nixon had his basic cabinet meetings where he talked with this secretary and that secretary of state and defense, treasury. You know, yeah, he did, he did all that stuff. But not really. Not prati pratim. When everybody left... He got together with Nixon and talked for I mean with Kissinger and talked for hours. So it's funny. He put the full trust and everything into Kissinger. And the things like this. <clears throat> was Nixon a Jew lover? No. He was a what I would call a, a, a old fashioned anti Semite, which is has nothing to do with Hitler whatsoever. The problem we have that people always make the mistake, in my opinion, is to say they probably kind of a liberal standard. If a guy ever said anything bad about Jews, he's a Sony Israel, he's a Russian Marusha, he's an anti-Semite, all the rest of it. But it's not true. You don't have to like the Jews. You don't even have to, you know, refrain from saying bad things about the Jews. It's what your mice are. <laughs> you get it? What's your policy? What do you actually do? That's the thing that counts. And Nixon was a weirdo, like I said before. And on the one hand, he didn't like Jews. We know from the White House tapes, you know, from other places also. 
I remember when he ran for office, there was a guy in Baltimore told him, oh, he's going to be with the Nazis and all the rest of it. But that was baloney. You don't necessarily have to like Jews. We have our obnoxious qualities. You can't deny it. We have, not everything about us is a turn on. I hear the vart. But that's very different than saying, hurt them, kill them, this, that, and the other. That's like your opinion about the weather. So people say, oh, Nixon was anti-Semitic, all the rest of it. Not really. Not really. The reason I say not really, all throughout his life, and when he was president, he appointed certain Jews to very important positions in his government. And the idea was like this, you know, the Jews in general or whatever, but this guy is different, and that guy is different. His personal counsel was Leonard Garment. I remember this. He made the chief of the... Uh, what do you call it? The council we got the, the Federal Reserve Board was Arthur Burns, who was really Arthur Bernstein. Uh, there was a guy, Milton Stein. There's a whole group. If you're ever interested in this, um, to whatever degree, I still remember from my youth, there was a book by Bill Sapphire. Remember him? And he was a speechwriter for Nixon. He's Jewish. And he wrote a book called, I think, after, if I remember the title, it was After the Fall, meaning after Nixon fell out of office in uh, 74 from the Watergate. And uh, and he taught, He was very close with Nixon in, in, in a certain way. And he had a whole chapter about Nixon and the Jews and all the rest of it. And I'm telling you again, you know, in a practical way, didn't do anything wrong to the Jews. As a matter of fact, he did a lot of good for them. And he went, you look it up. Nixon went to YU, you know, to speak and places like that. Yeah, and B'nai B'riz. And the main important point is and here's where we get the Yad Hashem. When Nixon came to office, which was in sixty beginning of sixty nine, this is right after the Six Day War, when Israel was going through what we call the War of Attrition, Milchemet Shah. and basically Israel conquered all this land in sixty seven, and didn't want to give back any of it. You know what I'm saying? And they wanted the Arabs to make peace with the Pekin, which is not a realistic policy. Although I totally hear where they're coming from, and Nixon's attitude was. No, make the peace, give back the land, whatever land we're talking about, and we will support you. You understand? And meanwhile, you get a peace, uh, an acceptance of Israel, and a peace, you know, uh, in the Middle East. And it'll be good for America, because we'll be able to, to, to deliver the peace. You see, people don't remember, when Nixon came into office, almost all the Arab countries had broken diplomatic relations with the United States after the Six-Day War. So in other words, Egypt and America did not have embassies. Syria and America, Iraq and America, you know, Algeria, Libya, all these countries. A few of them did, like Jordan and Saudi Arabia. They're like Western kings. But most of the Arab countries wouldn't have nothing to do with America because they they said America supported Israel in the Six-Day War when they conquered our territory. Instead, we're siding with Russia. So Russia had bases and stuff like that all over the place which was bad for American national security. So you see how complicated things are? And yet, in spite of what I just said, Nixon came to office appointing a Jewish guy as the head of the foreign policy, de facto. And Kissinger, when you're around Nixon and Nixon buddies, you're going to feel uncomfortable because they're going to say all kinds of bad things about the Jews. That's how they talk. You know, locker room talk. Uh, and Nixon really had it out for the liberal Jewish commentators, 
which I understand. In other words, from a conservative perspective, he said, the Jews are like the worst of the worst because they're always pushing things that are politically left-wing, woke, as we call today, and things of that nation. I mean, that's a point of view. You know, I hear that. I, to conflate that with being Jewish, in polite company, you can't do it. But in polite company, you could do it. And Kissinger wanted to hold on to power. And therefore, if you ever listen to the tape recordings, he says, you're right, the Jews stink, and this, that, and the other. Kissinger said it. But that's not what he really meant. You understand? I don't believe that. Uh, Jews can drive you crazy. A Jew knows that. And Kissinger knew that as well. But despite the fact that, you know, he went on along with all this Kissin- with this Nixon stuff, I can tell you, if you look at it in terms of Meissen, more or less from the very beginning, the Nixon administration strongly supported Israel. I remember under Nixon, that's when they started to give Israel real weapons. Under Nixon, that's when they started to give Israel real money. You see? Under Nixon, that's when the United States really was in Israel's corner as part of the Cold War. There was a whole crisis in 1970 about this. The Israeli ambassador at that time was Yitzhak Rabin, who had been the general who won the Six-Day War. And him and Kissinger and Nixon were very tight. It's interesting. They knew how to press the buttons. And Nixon had a very interesting relation with Golda Meir. Right? Just go online and Google uh, Golda Meir coming to the White House or something like that. You see, he gave her covered malachim. You understand? Now, he did it to the Arabs too. Why not? But I'm saying, Nixon was the first president that really gave Israel what I would say a big amount of respect. Because his style was to give respect and attention to all the foreign countries, which was a big chachma. Nixon was always very popular overseas, more than in America. The Europeans, the Asians, they liked Nixon because he knew how to treat them in the way that they held was the proper way to be treated, more than Johnson and the others. Uh, So, I mean, I can't go into this at great lengths. There's a lot to talk about. But I'll tell you one thing. When Kissinger came in, under Nixon, all of a sudden, the United States stopped talking about the Israeli A-bomb. For years before that, under Kennedy, especially, and under Johnson, less so, but still, America kept saying, are you building A-bomb? Do you have permission to do this? Let us see Demona. They drove Israel crazy with this stuff. Uh, all of a sudden, when, when Nixon came in, it's like, we're not talking about this anymore. That's a big plus for Israel. You know what I'm saying? That's a big plus for Israel. And when they had this war against Nasser, the war of attrition, and all this sort of thing, I mean, America did. He didn't do it overnight. It took a while. But he gave them the best planes that America would never give them before. He had the Phantoms. Right? And they backed Israel. He tried to be even-handed, but they backed Israel. So when the United Nations sent this um, uh, mediator to try to have you know, a peace treaty based on Israel's withdrawal from the occupied territories. I mean, Nixon secretly said to the, not but for Hesia, secretly said to Israel, he said, you know, you know, you don't have to pay attention to the United Nations. You get it? I mean, he really did support Israel. Now, at the same time, he wanted that Israel, under its own, and its own time and place, should withdraw and give the land back that they took from the Arabs, in exchange for a genuine peace. But mind you, 
especially under Kissinger's influence, there was zero mention of the PLO, of Arafat, and all that kind of stuff. They were just like terrorists. What Nixon was talking about was giving Lynn back to Jordan, Jordan, when the King of Jordan had just wiped out the PLO in his own country in the Civil War of 1970, late 1970. That's when Rev. Hutner and the plane was got kidnapped and we're in the middle of that civil war so it's you know incredibly complex and complicated now most importantly kissinger who was a ruthless guy I tell you, you know he really chased the Olamaza, and he wanted to get to a totally commanding position in the foreign policy even though he had one uh he's the one that made he's the one not the secretary of state who made the overtures to China, the State Department didn't even know about it. He's the one who made the, the special deals with Russia. State Department didn't even know about it until after it was done. But when Nixon was reelected in 72, and I don't know if you remember this, Nixon was reelected in every state. He carried 49 states. You know what I said? Carried 49 states against McGovern. The only one he didn't carry was Massachusetts. Okay? So... Uh, when Nixon was re-elected, uh, Kissinger really pushed him to fire the Secretary of State, who was uh, not a powerful figure, William Rogers, a friend of Nixon's, but nobody special. And Nixon should, and, and Kissinger should get the job. And Nixon eventually did it. So he made Kissinger, in 73, the holding two posts, which give him a complete lockdown of foreign policy. Kissinger was Secretary of State, and at the same time, National Security Advisor. So as he dominated the foreign policy apparatus in a way that nobody else did. And he only did this because Nixon gave him the cuff to do it. You see? So uh, Israel thought, this is good. Uh, foreign policy in safe hands with Kissinger. He doesn't want to wipe out Israel. He's always talking about the fact that he was an American and not a Jew. But he didn't really mean that. <laughs> you understand? I know all the things in the movies, all the rest of it. I'm an American first, and then this, and Golden Mary says that. But really, 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 he was a Holocaust survivor, so to speak. And he lost a lot of relatives over there. And Kissinger had visited Israel many times before he became National Security Advisor. He wasn't crazy. He was just smart enough to be discreet about it. You see him? The smart people are the ones that don't talk. You see, I always said that. You know, people say Truman recognized Israel because he had a Jewish friend, Eddie Jacobson. There's a little bit of truth to that, but the much greater truth is that he had a lawyer, his personal lawyer, Max Lowenthal, who you've never heard of, who was a Harvard grad, Harvard Law School graduate, and who had been with Truman when Truman was a senator without going through all the details. And when Truman was in the White House, Max Lowenthal was like a big mocker in the White House, behind the scenes, and he, if I drained Truman a cup, Yom Avalayla, to do something to help the Jews and recognize Israel. And Truman even said it. But if you look at Max Lowenthal's, uh, what do you call it, uh, memoirs, uh, the oral interview that he gave to the Truman Library, it's online. They'll say, what about Israel? Say, oh, I had nothing to do with the Middle East. <laughs> you get it? Because those who really did just shut up. You understand? Those who really did shut up. No, he held, not like Queen Esther, but like the Chacham, Kino Atma Orerus Alina Ben Umos. So Kissinger was that tight. Uh, the thing is, in the second administration, 
Nixon and Kissinger were planning, I mean, this is true, to push Israel to make a peace involving withdrawal from occupied territories, especially the Sinai Desert. Uh, Israel was scared to do this, right or wrong. See, we have a different viewpoint 50 years later, because a few years later, Israel did do this to get a peace with Sadat under Begin. Here I'm talking about six years earlier, and the second Nixon administration, and he was planning to tell Golda Meir, look, we backed you to the hilt, and we will back you to the hilt, but you got to do something also. You've got to agree to negotiate a real peace treaty, right? But it's going to involve your withdrawal from the lands that you conquered in, 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 in the 67 war. I don't say every inch. We can negotiate how much. But certainly when it comes to Egypt, we should be able to get rid of the, get out of Sinai Desert. You know, all kinds of things like that. Israel did not want to budge. Or Golda Meir didn't. Uh, Moshe Dayan, who was the defense minister, actually was in favor of the idea, but that's a different schmooze. And otherwise, I'll go for you forever. And as a result, there was no movement during 1973. And then on Yom Kippur, all of a sudden, they got got surprise attacked. Israel did. Like happened now on October 7th, right? I think it was October 5th in 1973 on Yom Kippur, as you know. Uh, Now, just before that, just before that, Nixon had appointed Kissinger as Secretary of State. So, the Rabbani Shalom so organized matters that the State Department, which always was anti-Israel, was now under the control of Kissinger at a moment of the greatest crisis when Israel was attacked on both sides in the north and the south by the Syrians on the one hand and Egyptians on the other. And it was a terrible time. Again, they got caught with their pants down. There were a lot of casualties. But the guy in charge of American foreign policy was Kissinger. Now, Nixon was in the ultimate control, but heavily influenced by Kissinger. And, and Nixon at that time was having gehocked at SARS with the Watergate scandal. It's ironic. He won the big election, but immediately after the election was over, they started prosecuting for the Watergate, which he was guilty of, let's face it. You understand? He thought that he could somehow get around it. They couldn't. Now, Kiss, uh, Nixon was the author of his own misfortune because he taped himself. If he hadn't taped himself, he wouldn't have gotten caught and nothing would have happened. I have no evidence. It was all based on the taping. Why did he tape himself? Oh, he wanted everything about him to go down in history. Every time he burped and sneezed, it should go down in history. That's stupid beyond belief. But, you know, no, let's put it this way. Do you want everything <laughs> about you to be known history? You say, I want my grandchildren to know how many times I went to the bathroom. Not really. Not really. There's plenty of things, you know, that you don't need to know. And we don't know everything about George Washington. Nevertheless, we know enough about him to say he was a great president. You have to know every minute. But, you know, Nixon was the type to, to bug himself, to, to tape himself. And therefore, he was a octosaurus. And so, look how their Bunishalm set this up. That the moment when Israel was attacked in mortal threat, because in the beginning, if you look up, you know, the way the Assyrians, especially the Egyptians, were successful in their attack. I'm, you know, it's if you're if you're too bored to read anything, it's on my YouTube site. They just put out my talks about the in, in the Yom Kippur War at length in 2017. If you can if you can handle all that, you know, it's pretty depressing some of it. Uh, 
But nevertheless, who was in charge of American foreign policy? This Jewish guy. Matter of fact, it was interesting. Nixon had appointed as Secretary of Defense a guy named Schlesinger, James Schlesinger, who was a Meshumid. He was born Jewish and he converted to Christian, to Lutheran, and is a sincere convert to Christian. So that's weird because now comes an attack on, on Israel by Egypt and Syria. And Schlesinger was like basically anti Israel. And Kissinger was pro-Israel, even though both sides put out and you know they put out their spin. But that's what happened. You understand? That's what happened. And if you want to see details of this, Kissinger has a book. He wrote a bunch of books called Crisis. I bet you it cost two bucks online, probably, probably. And there he goes into great detail about how he her first heard on Yom Kippur, you know, that there's an attack. And it wasn't clear what's happening, just like it wasn't clear to us right away what happened on October 7th with the Simplicist Torah massacres, and how he eventually responded to it. And the bottom line is that he and Nixon, but mainly he was doing all the work because Nixon was half the time drunk, half the time fighting the Watergate. But he ran around, and he was able to turn the whole business in such a way that when the war was over, which he pushed it to end at a certain time. The Soviets were trying to get in. I mean, Russia said, we're going to intervene on behalf of Egypt. And Kissinger, because Nixon was drunk, said, we're going to the Dr. Strangelove scenario. They, they announced a full-scale alert and all the nuclear, I don't know if you know this, and America pulled out all the nuclear weapons ready to shoot at Russia and vice versa. <laughs> Now, Kissinger didn't really have Rishus to do this, except that since Nixon was, like, out of it, you know, he was in it half the time, out of it half the time, he got away with it. And the Russians backed down because they said it's not worth us nuking each other. And by the time it's over, um, there's so many details here. By the time it's over, um, first of all, as you know, Kissinger and Nixon resupplied Israel and saved their life with all those weapons, even though people at that time, I remember very clearly, people angry at Kissinger, they said, he's deliberately delaying it and all the rest of them. I don't think that's correct. As far as I know, now in history, if you have an eye in it, you'll see that um, both Nixon and Kissinger said, we got to resupply Israel. Israel will go down under the tubes. You understand? And America sent them a velt of ammunition. And... Um, the State Department wasn't crazy about it. The Defense Department under Schlesinger said it's not a good idea. And they were dragging their feet and they weren't doing it. And remember, Nixon called him in. He said like this, I'm the president. You're not. I'm telling you we're going to supply Israel now. If you don't do it, you're all fired. I'll get people that'll do it. You know what I'm saying? And he had General Haig, Alexander Haig. He said, you you be the head chopper. Whoever doesn't listen to what I'm saying, you know, fire him. And as a result... The military went into high gear, as only the American military can, and they did this unbelievable logistical zach. You look it up, it's called Operation Nickel Grass. Go look it up. Nickel Grass. Where the European countries wanted let American planes fly to Israel to, to help you know Israel with the weapons uh, because they're afraid of the Arab reaction. That's who Europe is. I mean, France and England and Germany. 
So America just flew it. They they twisted the arm of Portugal. The Portuguese have the Canary Islands. I think that's what it is. In the, in the mid-Atlantic. And then from there, they flew to Israel. Bottom line is they pulled off a logistical masterpiece and they flew whole tanks and airplanes, these giant airplanes. And I don't know, you know, I remember the Russians sent the Arabs in the war something like 10,000 tons of ammo and resupplies, and Nixon sent Israel about 30,000. He said, if we do it, we do it. And uh, this is heavily influenced by, by Kissinger. I can tell you, if you had somebody who wasn't Jewish as part of the Secretary of State, National Defense, all I don't think America would have stuck their head out to this. They certainly did not do this in 1967. Now, fortunately, they didn't need it. I'm saying America really stuck its nose out to uh, stuck its neck out to help Israel. That's just undeniable. And Kissinger's the one who did it. Now, at the same time, he said, I don't want a situation where Israel has a total victory because then the Arabs will be totally peeled and then we'll have a terrible time in the Middle East. Israel was very angry about that. I and all my fellow Jews at that time were very angry about that because we want Israel to have a total victory, which is understandable. But Kissinger said, you know, it's not good as an outcome. The outcome should be there was some kind of a peace treaty. And remember, he wanted Israel to withdraw anyway. And so he was able to get to Egypt and win over Sadat, the president of Egypt, which was a major accomplishment. And from then on, from uh, October, late October, in other words, after Simchas Torah, on, Kissinger put Egypt on the path that, looking back in hindsight, took six years until they made a complete and total peace and treaty with, with Israel because they separated the armies and then Israel pulled back a little bit here, pulled back a little bit there, and Egypt gave a little concessions here and a little concessions there. And we were all scared at that time that Israel was going to give way to store and be exposed, and then Egypt will come in and wipe us out. I remember that. But that's not what happened, and Kissinger says not what's going to happen. At the same time, the Arabs pulled the oil embargo, and the U.S. all of a sudden found itself, instead of paying 30 cents or 35 cents a gallon, which is what we used to pay for gas, plus, by the way, they uh, washed your windows, they uh, fixed your tires, you know, it was a different America. There's no self-serve. These guys all came out and they did all kinds of stuff and they gave you presents. I'm serious. I'm very serious. Gave you presents and green stamps and who knows what. And next day, it's a buck. And next day, it's two bucks. You know, think about that. You're always driving and it's 35 cents and then it's not, right? And I was always afraid at that time it shouldn't be, uh, which there would have been today with the internet. Thank God there wasn't internet at that time. It was the old America with three or four stations, and they were not anti-Semitic, and uh, they could lose their license. It was a different America. They didn't have all the Muslim population here. It was a different America, and the country did not blame the Jews for the jack-up in the, in the oil prices. And Kissinger was able to, uh, first of all, make the peace treaty, uh, 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 ceasefires with Egypt and then Syria, and then followed up the Egypt one with like two others, I think, in which Israel pulled out from some areas in the Sinai. Now, they didn't want to pull out, and Kissinger had to twist their arms and scream at them. It was like in-house. He used to fly to Israel, 
and he says, you damn Jews. <laughs> That's how he talked, you know, uh, and things like that. But the Israelis knew is from Unzera. You know, Santa Claus, they talked to him like they didn't talk to someone else. And eventually he got a rabbin in Paris who was the prime minister at that time in 75 to pull back a little more from the Sinai. But you and I know it culminated a few years later under Begin with a complete and total peace treaty. So he really put that on the on the road. Now, does that make him a tzaddik? I think it makes him a good Jew. He was trying his best to help Israel within the framework of his responsibility as the Secretary of State of the United States. You see him? Was he a tzaddik? That's not the issue. Uh, and like I say, he used to have temper tantrums and all. Those things are true and they're interesting to some certain types of historians, but not to me. I want to say like this, you know, what? what's your Amira and what's your Maisim? You know, because I'll say Amor Madba, I'll say Harbein and things like that. In the case of Nixon himself, who should get the credit, and Kissinger, whatever they said, and whatever they spoke about Israel, and, and I don't remember criticizing Israel, I remember criticizing Jews. <laughs> whatever he said, that's not what they did. You understand? And Nixon was really all... You know, Goldemir called over and said, we're going down, we need help. And Nixon said, we're going to help you. So I don't care if he said, I don't like Jews or something like that. It doesn't mean anything. What means something is, when push came to shove, he was there. And he saw it through. Now, within a, within less than a year after the Yom Kippur War, Nixon was out because of the Watergate. And if you remember, Kissinger stayed in. The new president, Gerald Ford, was so inexperienced especially in foreign policy. Nixon was very experienced in foreign policy. Ford was not. I still remember it. When Ford became the president, the first thing he says is, I want you to know I'm keeping Kissinger. And the country said, good. You understand? At least we have a smart guy in the Secretary of State. So, um, as a result, when he left office, a lot of people didn't like him and still don't. And I think this is a little bit of uh, uh, divine... Uh, with a poetic justice, because he really wanted to be famous and beloved. I know he admired Atchison, Dean Atchison, who was Truman's Secretary of State, who became an iconic figure and very looked up to, and Kissinger wanted to be that type. But it was not to be. People looked at him as devious, as sneaky. Uh, the Jews all said like this, he heard Israel. I don't say it's true, I'm just saying what the people said. And he was bad on this and that. And because he had bombed Vietnam and Cambodia and other places, a lot of people always wanted to kill him. And so for the rest of his life, you know, Kissinger had to operate very gingerly. The people in the government were always respectful of him. The Hamunam was never clear. His name was never clear. All the presidents afterwards, you know, Carter and Reagan and Bush and Clinton and all those guys, always used to consult Nixon. But it was always like, you know, so to speak. So was he a pride and joy you know, to his parents and the other? I don't know. I wasn't there. But he certainly got his Olam Haza, but not the, not the, let's put it this way. He got the power side of the Olam Haza for eight years. And then he didn't. And uh, the uh, love and, uh, you know, popularity that he craved, that he did not get. It's, you know, like, and those are both Shalom denied that to him. So he comes across as a very interesting figure. I'm sure he wanted to go down in Jewish history 
as somebody positive. He he emerges as 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 a uh, controversial and complex figure in Jewish history. Oh my time! You know, is it going to end? But I, there's one more point I want to mention also, since we're talking about the Jewish angle. And that's very interesting, also. That's Soviet Jewry, which really started in Kissinger and Nixon's time. I mean, they already had a little bit before that in the 60s, very small, but it really took off from 69 and afterwards. Those who are old enough will remember that, mainly from 69 and afterwards, when Nixon came in. Now, this is a question of let Russia, let the Jews go, leave Russia and go to Israel. Uh, what the Russians didn't want to do. On the other hand, pressure was building up. Public opinion was building up. The Russians really hated being looked like a, like they're running a prison camp, which they were, and nobody can leave. You see, the history of Russia is weird. Before the First World War under the Tsar, anybody wouldn't leave Russia. Jewish, please, not only we're not stopping you, please go. You see, please go. You're doing us a favor. So there was no impediment to leaving Russia. But when the communists took over, they said, we're running a paradise here. Anybody wants to leave, Shema Minah, he doesn't hold this a paradise, then you're an enemy of ours, we're going to kill you. You know, how dare you want to leave? And for many decades, this, the Jews were stuck in Russia. But starting the 60s, especially after the Six-Day War, there started to be the Soviet Jewry movement. The Jews went again. And the question is, what can the U.S. do about it? When Nixon and Kissinger came in, they wanted to pursue what they called, excuse me, detente, which means to try to ease the relations between America and Russia, based on the idea there should be more peace. Right? So, even though Kabdeva Chashteo, you can't trust them all the rest of it, but still, they wanted to make agreements with Russia that will, um, how shall I put it, ease the relations of the East and West. This was extremely controversial. And to tell you the truth, me, myself, and I, I don't think Nixon was right. But this is what they they did, because they helped the Russian economy and stuff like that, which was stupid. Reagan's the one who got it right. But I'm talking about what Nixon Kissinger did. And remember, it was the Vietnam War going on at that time. So uh, America and Russia had a very unusual set of relationships, which went up and down during Nixon's time. But he wanted to go up. And he did make certain concessions to them. <laughs> And by 1972, when he was running for re-election, Nixon went to Moscow. They gave him Kabbalochim, and afterwards, Brezhnev came here, and then Nixon went back there. Now the relationships improved. Uh, I would say under Reagan, under Carter and Reagan, the relationships went bad again. Now, what does that have to do with the Soviet Jewry? The Jews in America were asking Nixon and Kissinger, can you help get the Jews out? Now, the funny thing is like this. Nixon did not like being pressured that American policy toward Russia should get involved with the Jews because it's not a Jewish, it's not an American problem. On the other hand, as a human being, he was interested in this. See, Mamish was a split personality if you're Ma'ayan in the subject. And Kissinger also, and there are a lot of famous tapes that have been published now where Kissinger said, we're not interested in the Russian Jews. It's not American policy. The Russians can gas them as far as we can. That's right. He said, put them in gas chambers for all we care. Listen to the other. But that's the way Kissinger had to talk around Nixon when Nixon was in one of his bad moods. He simply had to know how to manage, you know, the, the tantrums of Nixon. Because after Nixon, I tell you, he's a weird guy. After he had the tantrums, 
He was normal. <laughs> that's, that's how it was with Nixon. You understand? So, if you're going to be like a pure liberal and you say, did you ever say anything bad about Jews? They sure did. But when it came to actions, there's a different story. And Nixon himself had a very interesting insight into the Russian mentality, which was true. And that was, look, if you go to the Russians and say, let my people go, you're holding them down for prison, and Russia is a terrible society, you're just going to tick them off and they're going to go in the other direction. Because nobody likes to be challenged in their basic legitimacy. Even though you had every right to do that, and Ronald Reagan did do that, but Nixon said like this, if you confront the Russians like that, you know, in their face, they're going to react in the opposite way. They're not going to let anybody out. <clears throat> and by the way, under Reagan, the Russians shut down the Soviet Jewish immigration. Look up the figures, okay? <clears throat> what Nixon did was like this. <clears throat> he talked to Russians the way he figured would work with them, and it did work with them. He said, listen, I got these damn Jews breathing down my back. Really, America and Russia ought to get along. We should pursue a policy of detente. <clears throat> I know... The Jews are a pain in the neck, I get it. Listen, from a pragmatic point of view, maybe you just want to let them go or let some of them go just to get these guys the heck off our back so we can do business, you know, quits from that. Do you get what I'm saying? I want to tell you something. He got 150000 out through that. I'll say it again. He got 150000 150,000 Soviet Jews got out between 69 and 73, okay? Because Russia said like this, all right, He's not asking us to do this because, in principle, we're tyrannical or anything like that. He's asking us to help him for, for pure, cynical politics. That's what we, the Soviets, that's what we specialize in, cynical politics. If you tell me you want to get somebody out to help you in your re-election or to help you uh, in Congress to get legislation passed normalizing relations with the Soviet Union, okay. And Kissinger had to play like a double role in this. Half the time, he had to go along with the Nixon tantrums. Then half the time, they would say, okay, but, you know, when he would talk to the Russian ambassador, I think he talked to him every day. I remember it was Dobrynin. Kissinger was talking to Dobrynin every day. Uh, little by little, they dropped this stuff. and said, why don't you let a few out, a few out, a few out, a few out. And the Russians eventually came to conclude, the Soviets, in 71, especially 72, in order to get Congress to go along with the detente and pass laws that help Russian economy, things like this, they are willing to say unofficially and without promising anything that they might let out 40, 50,000 a year. Imagine if that would happen. And Nixon and Kissinger said, so I guess, take the deal, right? Let's just pretend that this happened. So imagine all through the 70s and the 80s, they would have let out crazy 50000 a year. Which, by the way, the deal was they would fly straight to Israel. I remember this. So it's not like the way it was that most of them end up going to America or other Western countries. They go straight to Israel. So Israel will get the benefit. 50000 a year, that's like a, 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 this. It's a million. It's more than a million. At that time, no, it's by the time the Soviet Union would have collapsed, most of the Jews wouldn't have gone anyway. You see what I'm saying? It was a real opportunity. But instead, Senator Henry Jackson, who was a Tzaddik, uh, Scoop Jackson, and, he's, and he was a righteous guy, 
And he said, the communists are terrible, and we have to fight them as a neocon. And he was a big opponent of Nixon's policy and Kissinger's policy on detente. And he said, we're going to pass a law that, you know, we can't give any concessions to Russia unless Russia agrees to let the Jews out in large numbers. So once you made it in the, your face, and for Hesse, Russia backed down. Do you get it? So Kissinger always said, and he wasn't exactly wrong, that uh, Henry Jackson and those kind of Jews uh, are the ones that messed everything up. We could have had a good deal. And that's very typically Nixon and Kissinger, which is don't appeal to singing rhetoric and Thomas Jefferson language and all men are created equal and the Jews should be allowed to leave and go to Israel as a, as a natural right. Do it in an underhanded way, like like a sort of a pidgin shvuyim type thing. Mama's a pidgin shvuyim. When you do pidgin shvuyim, you give the pirates some money, lets the Jew go. I, is it a, a matter of, you know, uh, philosophical principle or freedom? It's transactional. They're getting money. They're getting something from it. But the Jews are like this. Chubs and bud. Meanwhile, I'll get my people out. Let me get my people out. And, uh... Again, it's a very interesting. It, it, these are all huge subjects I'm throwing at you, and each one has to be studied in detail, and not just by the superficial guys. You have to know what's going on underneath. I just have the time to go into it now. I think I did all this in the uh, Saturday night talks. Eventually, this will all be up online, I suppose, on the web. My team puts it out when they think it's the right time to go out. Um... Uh, but again, you know, that was a that was Mamasha, a typical Nixon type of thing, which is I know how to talk to the Russians, and I know how to appeal to their side, and the bottom line is we're getting your Jews out, which is true, right? The bottom line is the bottom line. The bottom line is you won't have to refuse Nix. They'll just get the heck out of there, and they'll go to Israel and go Marnu. And like the guy said, when they come to get us, we won't be there. That famous expression, right? When they come to, pay, to arrest us, we won't be there. But it wasn't destined to happen that way. Instead, you went to Scoop Jackson Derek, which was what I would call the Ronald Reagan Derek. And it held things back by 15, 16 years. You know, it wasn't until uh, 1990 or so that Russia collapsed, which nobody could foresee. And the time of Kister and Nixon, Soviet Union was super powerful and gaining ground, gaining ground, especially in Africa. And uh, they're trying to do the best deal they could. So, again, whatever they say in rhetoric behind closed doors, and the damn Jews this and the damn Jews that, which they did say, and Kissinger was right along there saying, oh, if I wasn't Jewish, I'd be anti-Semitic and all the rest of it. They did talk like that. But that's talk as opposed to deeds. When it came to Lamaisa, they actually were there. You know what I'm saying? They actually were there. And there's a lot of uh, literature and all this sort of thing. And that was very typically the, the Nixon style, which is don't insult the Russians. Work with them. You understand? Work with them. This was very offensive to the conservatives and to the neoconservatives and to the Scoop Jackson and Ronald Reagan types. And eventually, that particular shita was driven out of popularity in the American body politic. So this is the, the shita that Nixon and Kissinger represented was popular perhaps in the late 60s, early 70s. By the late 70s, it was a trafe, you understand? Which is why Ronald Reagan came in and got elected twice, and Bush after him. 
Now it's considered the only way to deal with the Russians is hardball because they're doing it to us. Okay? So, uh, again, it's a very interesting study in the human style. And, uh, and you know, is, is Kissinger a hero of the Soviet Jewry movement? You can't say that. On the other hand, if he, the deal that evolved uh, between him and the Russians could have been a game changer and could have got, remember, in his time, 150,000, that's a, that's a lot of people. 150,000 got out. Could have been 10 times that, one and a half million could have gotten out much earlier than they did. We wouldn't have had all the refusing business. We wouldn't have had all the sufferings. You wouldn't have Sharansky and these other guys in Soviet jails. You know, it's a it's a famous what if question. So again, it, it, Kissinger emerges with this kind of funny and ambiguous legacy. Anyway, I've gone longer than I expected to. So I just want to thank once again Sally Cato for uh, sponsoring this. And uh, Kissinger is always going to be one of these interesting figures in Jewish history. Although, in my personal opinion, he looks better now than he did at that time. He looks better today, in 2023, than he seemed in 1973 or something like that. Which is interesting, right? Because it doesn't always work out that way. Many times it's the way they ran, other way around. You look at somebody in retrospect, he looks worse. Uh, but if you separate the Debor from the Misa, uh, I think he comes out looking better.